I'm Elle Miner, curatorial assistant at the Hirshhorn Museum, and I am here with Robert Berry, an artist whose works we just acquired for the collection from the collection of European collector Dr. Giuseppe Panza. We have four works of Robert Berry's that will be on view as part of the new exhibition, The Panza Collection. And the artist has been here for two days supervising the installation of the works. I wanted to start with the earliest piece, which is Steel Disc Suspended 1 8 Inch Above the Floor from 1967, which consists of a 2 inch steel disc hung from the ceiling on clear monofilament wire. This is one of the last works you did that was object oriented before moving greatly towards text. Can you talk a little bit about this piece and sort of if it was transitional and how it fits in with your larger body of work? All my work is transitional. Um, it deals with the same themes as the paintings and really what came after. That is to say, um, the space and the situation that the object is in and activate that space in some sort of personal, aesthetic way. And um, uh, the idea of the weight, the steel disc is uh, two inches in diameter, but it's about a half inch thick, so it's got some substance to it. It um, acts as a weight. You have um, the monofilament, which is very transparent, and if you step back a little bit, it's almost invisible. Um, and I guess I was playing with the space, the very, very small space between the bottom of the disc and the floor itself, which would be about an eighth of an inch, and then that long space above, which uh, goes to the ceiling, um, the interplay of the material, the um, uh, reflection of the uh, steel, it's, it's a kind of polished steel, so it kind of reflects a little bit the room and um, yourself. So in many levels it kind of, uh, although the, the piece itself is one idea, but it changes every time it's shown in a different location. And this is some idea that I've been working with uh, in, my, in my painting, certainly, from some years before that, where the um, uh, small panels, small squares of paint, uh, colored paint, monochrome, would be placed on the wall in some kind of geometric or symmetrical way, but it would activate the wall that it was on. It was, toward the end, most of the paintings were actually empty wall space, and it would just sort of delineate um, some of the space on the wall. And uh, it was, once again, meant to um, uh, confront the viewer in a, some sort of a phenomenal way so that if the viewer, he or she, uh, chose to um, uh, involve themselves, engage themselves in what was going on in front of them, uh, then hopefully they would get some kind of um, uh, interesting experience of themselves dealing with what, what I was presenting to them. And this piece kind of grows out of that uh, idea. Um, the material had, at that point, been reduced to monofilament and not using color and uh, really trying to use the situation and the place in which the piece was presented as really uh, part of the whole aesthetic idea. Not part of the piece, but part of the 
environment in which the piece was uh, activating the, the space and engaging the viewer in some way. <coughs> um, and just after that, I, I was I just, and maybe even at the same time, I was just using monofilament as a way of uh, stretching it from wall to ceiling, or a different kind of um, um, uh, different ways of some measuring out the the room in which it was uh, existing, or even outside. I did some outside pieces using nylon monofilament. It's it's there. It's certainly a, uh, a material. But it borders invisibility, especially if it's at some distance from the viewer. Uh, and I kind of like that idea of, sort of pushing, pushing the visibility of art. And then, of course, after that, I sort of got into these um, invisible materials, or materials that were not, um, uh, not perceivable by the eyes anyway. I know you did, for instance, the Inert Gas series, a group of works where you right. released different gases or chemicals into an environment. Gas, inert gas. I returned How? them to the atmosphere because they came from the atmosphere so it was a kind of a cyclical idea. Now those were documented in photographs mm -hmm. and sometimes possibly with a label on the wall, correct? Well they would be, they were framed um, with a, a tight uh, text explaining the title and uh, the place where and how much of it was, was released. Yeah. How important was the text in that particular instance? Well, it's very important. It was otherwise you wouldn't know what the photographs were about. It, we call it documentation, and um, um, I like the idea that each piece was released in a different location, at a different time of day, and um, uh, different amounts. And there were, I think, there were five inert gases. Um, this was an idea that really I uh, studied about the inner gases back when I was in a high school science class and it just they just seemed to me to be kind of interesting. Uh, they were called the noble gases, that's the name for them. The names in Greek are kind of nice um, and um, they're gas which is used by us. I mean it's uh, used to light. If you put current through it you get different kinds of light. Neon of course is the one most, but xenon and uh, Argon, uh, you've heard of argon lamps, and, and they produce different kinds of light. And um, they just had qualities which were just attracted me to them. Um, they come from the atmosphere, you have to take them out of the atmosphere. And uh, we didn't, at that point, we had only known about them for about a hundred years. Um, they were only discovered about a hundred years earlier, and people weren't even aware that these existed in the atmosphere. But it's also a material that we breathe in and breathe out. I mean, it's, you know, we, uh, um, we are physically engaged with it, so to speak. So it was just a kind of an attractive thing that I just stayed in the back of my mind. Um, I, uh, some writer wrote about them at one point, I remember. Um, and. Uh, they just had this appeal to me, and they're inert, which means they don't change chemically. They remain the same all the time. They don't intermix with any other um, molecules. And um, it's taken out of the atmosphere and then put into a, it's measured, put into a measured container that you can buy, scientific warehouse. 
And this, sort of the subtitle of the show was From Measured Volume to Indefinite Expansion. It was called the Inert Gas Series, From Measured Volume to Indefinite Expansion. And um, the idea of releasing this gas back into the atmosphere and have it endlessly expand in the universe and change, in the, in the atmosphere and change. Um, the idea of cycles, cyclical, um, was something that I was working on then. Starting at one point, going around, coming back to the same point, but with a different experience. Um, these are all very basic ideas that I think have to do with life, the way we live, and uh, that people can relate to. Uh, and, uh, makes a real connection between art and life uh, and uh, this is what my art was reflecting at that time and to a large extent still does. Now the three other works that are on view all employ text and I'm sure viewers are going to want to know how you select the words you choose to use. It's all intuitive, just intuitive. Uh, reading, uh, see something underlined in red and go back and write it down or hear someone on the radio use a word. There is no method. <clears throat> um, it's just what strikes me that I think I can use. I like words that sort of reflect a certain state of being. Um, I don't use words like table or chair or anything like no specific nouns. Um, words that I think are suggestive of something but nothing really definite. I kind of like the concreteness of the image, the word image, which I think is interesting because they also have a look, they design, there's a certain color, height, typeface, but a lot of trouble to find the right font and also sometimes we have to change the look in the computer a little bit. Um, but also they have this kind of ambiguous nature, they don't really have any meaning by themselves, they just floating in space or put into a, a spatial situation, into an artistic situation. They have this ambiguous presence and art is basically ambiguous anyway. I mean, uh, you know, it's not something really specific. Everybody comes to it with a different point of view. And um, so I kind of like that contrast, that quality, that um, the fact that these words have a history, if someone chooses to become involved and look at it, they react to it in their own personal way with their own history and they make of it what they want. And uh, the role of the spectator is, is important in my work. It's, it's aimed at someone becoming engaged in it and language is a very good way to draw someone into it because uh, words come from us. They don't, you can't find them in the world outside. So. Um, it's something quite personal and um, even if it's just for a second or so that to become engaged with the word is to um, um, is, uh, is, is a way of sort of drawing the spectator in and um, that's what I want to do uh, make some connection I mean that's the reason for making art right so you connect with somebody else even though you may not know that person and it creates a kind of a nice energy between the artwork and the spectator. That space between the spectator and the artwork is sort of important. It's another way of dealing with the aesthetic space. 
sort of a step beyond uh, the old paintings and the uh, sculpture. Now we have <coughs> two wall drawings and one slide piece. The slide piece is called... I call them wall pieces. Solowit makes wall drawings. <laughs> gotcha. Um, the slide piece is called It Has Variety, It Can Change, which <coughs> is a slide projector with 59 text slides and one blank. Yeah. As compared to the works that are on the wall, what role does sort of the cadence or the timing play in that well, timing is important, isn't it? I mean, it's, um, it's broken down. It's an element that uh, I like in my work. I, you know, I always wanted to work with time. And it was sort of evasive. It was certainly in my work. But this really confronts the idea of time. I mean, the projector is kind of like a clock ticking when you hear it clicking away. And I also like the idea of the, an art made out of light and dark. And the words just kind of appear, kind of spooky there, and not really, they're only there for a few seconds, and then they're gone, and something else comes to take its place. And uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I like that way of presenting. I mean, it deals with time directly, and, um, and the concepts, it's about it. It is, it is, you know, it can be, whatever. And um, um, so what is it that we're talking about here, you know? I mean, well, nothing really. <laughs> I mean, it's whatever you want it to be, essentially. And although it's defined with all these words, it, you're never really quite sure what I'm talking about. And one, as one critic said, I, um, you know, that I'm describing art. And you could think of it in that way, you know? The it is really art itself. Um, I didn't think about that when I was doing it. I was just trying to create some kind of mental um, object, some sort of uh, uh, ambiguous, ephemeral kind of thing that might be something very personal within the mind of the person who's looking at it. And one question that comes up with the slide projector piece that's been discussed here at the museum is, the role of the projector itself. We talked about timing, you've mentioned the sound. From a conservation standpoint, <laughs> do you hope that museums in the future will use the original type of projector, that, which is what yeah, we're doing, or what happens if it's made digital? Yeah, yeah. This is, unless you're making paintings or sculpture in bronze or stone, um, if you're working with technology, the technology is always changing, and this is just something that uh, one has to consider. That eventually Kodak is going to stop making those bulbs. I think they've already stopped making the projectors themselves. In some distant future time, they're all going to break down and there will be no more. Um, kind of like uh, the universe. <laughs> Eventually, uh, there won't be any more projectors, and uh, I have transferred a couple to uh, DVD discs, and it kind of and it kind of works. You know, it sort of works pretty well. Uh, you kind of get the same idea. Um, but I think if we worry about the pro the the preciousness of the object too much, um, you kind of miss the idea. But this is a work which is really um, uh, about what the words mean and about the timing. And um, certainly the look 
is kind of interesting because it looks like a certain kind of work that I did at that time in my life. But I think if those basic things can be preserved um, in a more advanced technology, that is to say that if the new technology can incorporate everything that the old technology has, but do it a little nicer, a little smoother, keep it going, I don't see a problem. And in a way, it kind of keeps, keeps the work going forever. You know, it's kind of like a Solowit drawing. I mean, you put them up there, and then eventually the wall's going to be painted over, and, you know, it will exist. But Saul gave us all the instructions on how to do it, and you can always find a couple of young people willing to sit down for a few weeks and do it. So in that way, they all they will always always be there, you know. And the idea of doing that is something that I, the idea of making infinite works is something which I like in the radioactive pieces where you have a half-life where you always have and have and have and have and have so that theoretically the energy is always there it's just been reduced either the half-life is a is a hundredth of a second in some or it can be a um, hundred thousand years in another so that um, this difference in time is very important but it does in a sense reflect infinity or the radio wave pieces going out into space. I mean, um, you know, they just extend into the universe infinitely. This show is really based, you know, around a single collector. And at the time that Dr. Pons was, you know, acquiring works by you and the other artists in the show, it was a pretty radical notion to be collecting sort of non-object-based works. What kind of particular directions, you know, do you leave behind, or what does someone like, whether it be Count Panza or another collector, what do they get when they purchase a Robert Berry work? What do they get physically? Mm -hmm. Well, Panza had us all sign contracts. <laughs> we had to sit down and sign to indicate that he owned this thing and there would be a description of the work. He got that, but he, you know, he essentially collected objects or descriptions of objects or descriptions of something that could be done repeatedly ad infinitum. That's what he got. I mean, when he bought something, he got something pretty substantial. He was an industrialist and a businessman, so he wasn't going to just buy something that he he couldn't have on a piece of this, a signed statement on a. He couldn't have your signature on a piece of paper. <laughs> There's definitely been, I think, a lot of attention paid over time to your work in Europe. And Dr. Panza is a European collector. <clears throat> what is your feeling on sort of the difference between how more conceptual work has been looked at from a European audience as opposed to an American I think it was audience? their history. They, um, their in involvement with art is simply just much stronger than ours. And they went through, uh, they were much more appreciative of um, some of the more conceptual um, things like Dada, for instance, and um, you know, things like that. It's just, um, it's just that the culture is more engaged in their, in their art history and in their art culture than I think we were here in the States. I think that began to change <clears throat> as people traveled more. 
Ponza really came to our work, I think, mostly, I think one would have to um, credit a dealer like Gianenzo Speroni. Um, and then later, um, uh, Leo Castelli. But I think Leo became interested in our work mainly through Ponza, because Ponza was a big collector of uh, Leo, and then Leo came to through Speroni to Leo and um, told Leo, I said, look, there are these artists, uh, Americans and Europeans who are doing this work, which is really interesting. And then Leo looked into it and immediately started showing. And then John Weber sort of got on and then a couple of other dealers sort of picked up on some, some of the artists, uh, the, the smaller dealers in New York. But it really was the Europeans who, who sought it out and were in New York in the late 60s and um, uh, were looking, were looking um, at, at uh, the land art and the more conceptual guys. And it was the first really sort of universal art movement when you think about it because there were some terrific artists in Italy and you had Biren and some of the other guys in France, and you had some of the Germans. Um, and they all seemed to be working, doing terrific art all around the same time. And young dealers were popping up. People who were just uh, like Paul Mance and um, Conrad Fisher, who was the first to show Saul and Lawrence and, you know, Carl Andre, people like that. And, uh, <clears throat> and Conrad was actually an artist before he was a dealer. He was in an exhibition that Paul Mans organized, in fact. Paul had ideas about being a, a curator. He worked in advertising. I met him when he came to New York, in fact. He, he worked for a big advertising firm. Um, I forget the name of it now. It was a very big one. And he was living in New York for about two years. And he was talking about being a dealer, organizing shows, curating. He was always fascinated with uh, this new art, something new, something different. And um, I'm not sure. He, he was living with a young artist, a uh, guy, um, I can't think of was a very interesting, uh, uh, his name's escaped me right now. And then, he, then after that, he, he was living with Gerd de Vries, who was a big scholar of um, John Cage. So I mean, if you're, if you're studying John Cage, then immediately you're sort of into a whole sort of like thinking on the edge in terms of uh, what constitutes art and, you know, where art was going. We mentioned Lawrence Wiener and, you know, several artists in this particular exhibition and of that era were engaging texts on the wall. So the other two pieces that we have here, one involves painting directly on the wall and the other one involves vinyl. What do you get out of the different media with those pieces? What do you, how do you see the sort of difference for the viewer between the vinyl-based works and the works where you're directly Almost painting? Almost no. I don't really uh, see that big a difference. Whatever works, sometimes I use them. Now I use, in the beginning I used to draw them myself um, by hand. The piece here, the first time I ever showed that piece, was a pencil on a wall. Actually, the first time I typed it out on a piece of paper. <clears throat> and the idea of putting it on a wall was just drawn by hand on the 
with pencil. Then I used a kind of a felt-tip pen when felt-tip pens were first came around, and then they had press type. Uh, where you could put each individual letter, and then they invented uh, computers in a way of making. I did a show in Italy where uh, I used a lot of words in Rome, and these guys, you know, showed them the drawings, and these guys overnight cut out long sheets of paper with the letters cut out perfectly, and they would tape, the, tape it on the old hand cut and they would tape the paper on the wall and then just sort of use that as a kind of stencil to paint the words. Uh, before they had computers that could cut it for them. Uh, but now with these thin vinyl films and the different colors, if I want a color that I just can't get in vinyl or I want a certain kind of effect that you can't get in vinyl, then I have a stencil made and then I paint it myself. Speaking about color, we can talk about the most recent work in the show, which is the 1983 untitled piece. So our staff painted a wall bright blue, and you've been here for the last two days, yeah. essentially making a drawing with oil stick of a tree on the blue wall. Not necessarily a tree. It could be like the veins in your hand. It's a kind of a symbol or metaphor for life and um, you know goes off the top which is kind of, trees are, are interesting to me I always use the tree image and I was looking for an image to break from just words quite frankly and um, the tree image was an image that popped up in my pho photography and my film and so forth and um, <clears throat> I decided to use it because it sort of stands up tall. It's kind of like us, you know, can relate to it in a certain way. It reaches up into the sky and it goes down into the earth. It's a kind of conduit of energy, sort of going around like this and coming out. And uh, <clears throat> it represents a kind of a cyclical idea, which I spoke about earlier, and um, kind of a life force. And then I like the idea of sort of painting over it, like the skin over the veins in your hand, you know, where the life is going back and forth. And so you have this kind of motion, and then you have the words going around like this, sort of alternating, uh, reflecting. I like the silver kind of reflects the light. The blue acts as a kind of absorption, and it covers the tree, but the, the silver kind of reflects the light in the room and sort of changes as the light in the room changes. So that's the idea of it. What about the choice of the colors? The blue is beautiful. Gotta choose a color and blue is fine. You know, whatever wall paints, you go through the wall paints and um, I like that blue. Where do you see yourself more specifically in the history of painting? It works against the red too. I mean, uh, the tree, I really like the idea of red, kind of, you know, like veins and stuff like that. And um, the blue kind of was like, just work well with it. I've used other colors and paintings and at different times and you know I did a series of paintings of old red, red paintings with trees. Um, but just for this show, this piece comes out of a show I did at Leo Castelli <clears throat> and I had four of those. Um, I painted the whole gallery blue and uh, did four of these big uh, trees and words and different variations and some of the words were red and, and 
you know. Um, so it was just this piece at that time was blue. If another time it could have been red. If we were to reinstall this work later on, which I'm sure we will, would we be allowed to do it in red? You'd have to do it in red. Somebody else can do it. It's not a big deal drawing that tree. If you know what it looks like, it's not a big deal. You know, you were Knock downstairs. Knock it off in an hour or an hour and a half. You were using a projection, right, of a slide. That was to just to, um, yeah, when Ponza bought the piece, he bought a kind of a, really a sort of a painting on paper, drawing painting on paper as a kind of certificate and then there's on the reverse there's a lot of instructions about how to make it and with the suggestion if the artist is still available to have him supervise it. But, once but then it also says refer to photos of the piece originally. We photographed it and made the drawing and Ponza should have a photo of the original installation someplace. Uh, and. Um, Anyway, now you have a photo, and so it's makeable. It's being made now, and I'm not even there, you know? So I really came to just to sort of make sure it was done correctly and to do it and to see it again if I can before I go, because they were never remade after that show. I, don't know, I think Ponce bought the only one. No others were sold. Painting is something you sort of worked with very early in your career and slightly went away from and then mm -hmm. strongly came back to in the 80s. What is it that, you know, what is it about painting that I think, you know, really brought you back or? Nothing special. Oh, I something. use what I have to, what I need. I'm making paintings now. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, making, they're about 70 inch squares. And it's just what I, this is what I need to do now to do what I want to do. This is where my ideas are taking me. I hadn't made any large paintings for, I don't know, when the last one was, maybe 10 years ago. I made a whole bunch of small ones. I did these, uh, I bought like 100 little can square canvases, you know, the kind that they sell to students or something, cheap little canvases. And I just started working out ideas on them. And they were cheap. If I didn't like it, I could just slash it and throw it away. I did a show of them. I did a couple of shows of them. and. Um, um, and you could just sort of work out all kinds of ideas that way in terms of painting. And there isn't anything special about painting. I mean, I, I usually paint the wall or I do something, you know, I'm always working with paint in one way or another, whether it's on a wall or on a, or a stencil or, uh, I don't know, you know, or on a canvas. This piece and others involve, you know, text on top of paint. Does the spacing between the texts, is that strictly a formal compositional decision? Or are you trying to convey something with almost like a, a I'm trying to experience? convey space between the words. So each word is isolated or that it... It is an aesthetic decision in a sense that um, I do tr try and make some kind of balance or create some kind of visual interest in where the words are placed. Where they're placed is important. Sometimes it appears random. Sometimes they go off the edge. Sometimes you may only see a letter or two and you're really not quite sure what the word is. You know it's a word, but you're not really quite sure what it is. Um, <clears throat> yeah, how they look, the size of them, the color. 
Uh, I try to keep it a very simple geometric format uh, without a lot of embellishment or anything like that. Simple geometry. We, for all intents and purposes, call you a conceptual artist as opposed to, say, a painter. What do you? How do you feel about that term? Do you feel I'm neither it's one, appropriate? Really. I'm neither one. I don't. What does conceptual art mean? I don't know. I have no definition for it. I've never met anybody that has, and I don't know any artists that call themselves conceptualists. Who's the most famous conceptual artist? You know, Lawrence Wiener. He hates the term. He never uses it. Kasuth, he uses it, but you ha he used to use it. I don't know now. He Joseph had a. You had to have a very specific definition of what conceptual meant for him to be considered a conceptual artist. So the only use it has is that uh, somebody does a conceptual art show, they invite you to come and you can put your work in a show and get it shown. That's about the only value that it has. It's completely, uh, has no meaning really and uh, in, in some ways very misleading. I always really the most uh, dematerialized work I've ever done still has some kind of material aspect to it. So um, I've always worked with some kind of material. The material may not be tangible, it may not be visible, but it's there and it's in some way measurable. Um, so in some way it's kind of misleading. There, I pushed it as far as I could with just simple text and uh, using tele uh, uh, t I'm doing a, I did a series called Telepathic Works, which in fact I'm showing in New York next uh, year. Old works. Uh, it's, and that's sort of pushing the idea of it about as far as you can. But this was a certain period back in the late 60s that I did this and um, and they're good works, they're perfectly fine. Um, <clears throat> but um, there's always something, there's always some physical aspect to whatever I do. Painting, painting, if I need to use paint I use it. If I feel that's where I have, what I need now, that's what I'll do. But I went for 20 years without making a painting in the traditional sense of a painting. Um, so I can go for long periods without making a painting. But I may still use paint for something. Uh. I think sometimes conceptual art is not just a term we use to describe the type of work, but the group of artists or the time period. And you and these other artists were really the first group of artists for whom that term was used readily. And I know you all were sort of cohorts and to some degree coming of age at the same time. Were you influencing each other's work? We were talking to each other. How much influence, I don't really know. It'd be very hard to say. But there was a lot of talk. We'd hang out at Max's Kansas City or, you know, everybody was talking to everybody else and visiting everybody else's studio. To me, it was a wonderful time. I had a ball back in the late 60s and so nobody had any money, but it was really great to be in New York and then hang out and talk with these guys and uh, then go to Europe in, 60, in the late 60s and have these 
But, you know, Buren came to New York, he was staying with Larry Wiener, Baldessari was in New York. I mean, um, I went, he invited me out to teach at CalArts, and um, I invited him to teach at Hunter. I was a teacher at Hunter at the time. Um, it was good. I, I enjoyed my time. I, I liked it very much. And then we went to Europe and hung out with the Italians, the Art de Povera guys, and uh, Mario Mertz, and... Uh, Everybody was very friendly with everybody, I, I think, and who knows who was, I th I'm sure everybody was sort of influencing everybody else, more or less. How is your studio practice or experience of making art different now than it was during More isolated, I don't really talk to anybody so much, a lot of my friends are dead. Um, it's, a, it's, I go in my studio and work by myself, have a show. I still have friends and they come to the shows. I don't go out anymore. There's not that kind of hanging out together aspect to it. Everybody's sort of separated and off in different countries. And uh, But <clears throat> um, making art is a very hard, solitary business. And um, never really quite sure what you're doing. Never really quite sure what you're doing is... Um, interesting or worthwhile or that anybody else is going to care and uh, being a successful artist I, f I think I, I consider myself a, a successful artist because not because I make a lot of money but because um, so far there's always someone who's willing to give you an opportunity to do something to show your work to do a show I'm at a stage where someone my studio first of all is closed no one goes in there no collectors, no dealers, nobody goes. If somebody wants to do a show, they just come to me and they say, I would like to do a show with you. Fine. And that's it. And they just have to trust me that whatever I show will, will work. It always does. I never have any complaints. But um, they don't come to my studio and look at work and say, well, I like this, I don't like that, I'm going to choose this. It doesn't work that way. Interesting. 